So for those of you who may be visiting, over the last few weeks we've been working our way through uh, the little book of Jonah, and this morning we come to the last chapter in the book and the last sermon in the series. But just to recap, remember that in chapter one of the book we read how God comes to the prophet Jonah and tells him to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before him. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians were the sworn enemy of Israel. Uh, Basically, they were a terrorist state that were trying to take over the world by violent conquest. And so Jonah goes down to the port city of Joppa and buys a one-way ticket to Tarshish, a city at the uttermost parts of the known world and, in fact, in the exact opposite direction to Nineveh. And we've seen in the series that sin, in essence, is doing what Jonah did, running away from God, and grace, in essence, is God running after us, not leaving us alone, but rather chasing us down in love to rescue us from our self-destructive behavior. And we read then of God's grace to Jonah in that he doesn't leave him alone. Rather, he sends a huge storm to stop Jonah in his tracks And when Jonah commands the sailors to throw him into the sea, God commands a great fish to swallow him and so preserve his life. In chapter 2, we read how quite understandably, in the depths of this great fish, in the depths of the ocean, Jonah cries out to God. He repents. He turns to God. He cries out to God and acknowledges those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. In chapter 3, we read how the great fish vomits Jonah onto the dry ground. And so when the, Lord of, when the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, go to the great city, Jonah does go. He goes into the city of Nineveh and preaches. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And we read how the Ninevites believe God. They humble themselves. They turn from their evil ways and their violence. And the chapter ends by saying, when God saw what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And so we come to chapter 4, and you might think that it would be a very short chapter, perhaps just one verse, something like, and Jonah returned to the land of Israel rejoicing, the end. But no, (laughs) the chapter is a little bit longer than that. There's one final twist in the tale. Let's have a look. Chapter 4 from verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. For the Lord said, You've been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The end. (laughs) And this is God's word. So far from being happy that God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity, Jonah is angry. What's going on here? Why is Jonah anger, ang- angry? Rather, well, Let's consider his anger for a few moments. Perhaps it had something to do with professional pride. Remember that in our first sermon, we had a look at 2 Kings, and we saw that Jonah was a prophet in Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam. And this is what we read. Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lobo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. In other words, before his call to Nineveh, Jonah had had a very successful ministry in the nation of Israel. He'd made prophecies about the borders of Israel expanding, and they had. It had made him look good as a prophet. Now, he announces, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, and nothing happens. I think that perhaps Jonah's professional pride was dented. More than that, we can say that Jonah was angry because God didn't act in the way that Jonah thought God should act. In other words, Jonah has a desire to control God. He knew exactly what should happen to Nineveh. It should be destroyed. Which poses an important and sobering question. If I believe that I know what God should do in any given situation, then who is God, (laughs) him or me? If I'm always looking at situations and telling God what he ought to do, then is he truly God, or am I putting myself in the place of God? Thirdly, in these verses, we see something of misdirected love and devotion. There is something in Jonah's life that is more important to him than God. In this passage, Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. In other words, there is something that I want, and if I don't get it, then I can't go on. 
So what was it that Jonah loved more than life itself? It would appear to be his nation, his people. Jonah has a level of patriotism, of national pride that overshadows his commitment to God. Do you remember when Jonah is on the ship and the sailors ask him about himself? They ask, what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And out of all of the things that Jonah could have answered, how does he reply? How does Jonah define himself? I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. In other words, Jonah identifies himself in terms of his nationality. He is proudly Israeli. Remember that part of Jonah's ministry had been the expansion of Israel's borders, and it appears then that his concern and his love for his nation has become greater than his love for God. The Assyrians are Israel's enemy. And so if Jonah has a choice, he would choose the safety and security of his nation above his loyalty to God. You see, whenever we say to God, God, I can't do without this, or God, I will love and serve you as long as you give me this, then the this is the God whom we really serve. All too often, people seek to serve God so that they can get from him the things that they truly worship. For Jonah specifically, that was the security and well-being of his nation. And as believers, it's possible to make a similar mistake as well. If as a congregation, we care more about our own interests, our sense of fellowship, our well-being, than the good and the salvation of other people around us, then we're sinning like Jonah. So professional pride, thinking he knew better than God, misplaced priorities, all these things lead Jonah to anger. But there's something else here too, and that is self-righteousness. Do you remember someone else in the Bible who was angry when God showed grace and mercy to the undeserving? Think of the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Remember Jesus told a story about a man who had two sons. The younger son says to his dad, in effect, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And he takes his father's money and runs off to a foreign country and squanders his wealth and becomes destitute. Eventually, his poverty and his hunger and his desperation cause him to return home, and his father welcomes him with open arms. He shouts out, quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found." But Jesus goes on to say that when the older brother heard what his father had done, he became angry and refused to go into the house. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. 
It's quite fascinating to see then that in the first two chapters of the book, Jonah plays the role of the younger brother who runs away from home. But here in this chapter, Jonah plays the role of the older brother. He's angry that God is showing mercy to the undeserving. And what is absolutely astounding to me is how quickly Jonah forgets. He's angry that God is being merciful to undeserving sinners, completely forgetting that a few days ago, he himself was just such an undeserving sinner in need of God's mercy. Now again, unfortunately, this is not just a story about Jonah. It's a story about us too. We too can so quickly fall into self-righteousness. In fact, there are many people who push God away through their own self-righteousness. They think to themselves, I'm a good person, and so I don't really need God to save me. I can be my own savior. In fact, it's very possible to hide from an intimate relationship with God through our goodness. Because if I'm good, then God can't ask anything of me. I've done my bit. I've paid my dues. I can keep him at a distance. It's also possible, once we have come into a genuine relationship with God, though, to forget that we are saved utterly and completely by God's grace alone. We forget that there's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us any less. As we saw in Jonah's prayer a couple of weeks ago, salvation is from the Lord. We can forget that the gospel is not about something we do, but about what has been done for us. That Christ has paid the price for our sins and given us his righteousness. And by faith we simply accept and receive what has been done on our behalf. You see, the problem is, if one can call it a problem, that accepting Christ does lead to a changed life. We have new goals, we have new priorities, our lives become different. Instead of going off to the pub on a Friday night and getting drunk, we start attending church, we start attending Bible study, we start learning about God's Word, we, we grow in prayer. Instead of being focused on ourselves, we start to serve others. Perhaps maybe you've even had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, and so you've managed to avoid some of the bigger sins altogether. And after a while, we can begin to think to ourselves, actually, I'm a pretty good candidate for God. You see, we're so used to thinking that our good works make us acceptable in the world and acceptable to God that we slip into thinking that our changed life makes us acceptable to him. We forget that we're totally accepted, which results in change, and we think that the change makes us acceptable. And that in turn then leads us to look down on others whose lives haven't yet changed. And so perhaps people enter our church who haven't had the same educational opportunities that we've had, don't have the same economic opportunities that we have, don't have the same employment opportunities that we have. They're poor, they're needy, perhaps they're a little bit different, maybe even difficult. 
And it's so easy for us to forget that actually, before God, we too are poor and needy and difficult. None of us can hold anything in our hands that would commend ourselves to God. We're all beggars in need of food and clothing and shelter from God. You know, any advance that I feel that I may have made in the Christian life, and any deeper understanding of God's Word, is God's gracious gift to me anyway. Even my desire to want God comes from God. And so remember then how in Luke chapter 9, the disciples are arguing again about who is the most important. And we read that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all he is the greatest. The littlest, weakest, most unattractive person in our church who appears to have nothing to give us is in Jesus' eyes the most important person in the classic congregation. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that we're sinners saved by grace. No place for self-righteousness. Let's move on, though, from Jonah, and let's spend a few minutes looking at God's response to this reluctant and rebellious prophet. You know, God is so gracious and gentle here. He doesn't send another storm on Jonah or get him, you know, swallowed by another animal. He, he, he simply asks Jonah a question, like a good counselor or therapist would do, to make Jonah think. Verse 4, have you any right to be angry? One writer points out that God likes to ask us questions because they reveal our heart uh, to him and to ourselves. Th think about some of the questions that God asks in Scripture. Uh, to Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you have done? Or to Cain, where is your brother Abel? To Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? To the disciples, who do you say I am? To a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? To Judas, are you betraying the Son of, God, uh, Son of Man with a kiss? Interestingly, Jonah doesn't answer God. Instead, we read in verse 5 that he goes outside of the city for safety's sake, and he makes himself a shelter east of the city, and he sits down in the shade to wait and see what will happen. Perhaps God will change his mind and nuke them anyway. And so God decides to give Jonah a quick object lesson. We usually learn more from experience than just through words. While Jonah is sulking under his shelter, God causes a vine to grow up above him very quickly. And Jonah is very grateful for the plant and the shade he receives. But then, just as quickly overnight, God provides a worm to eat the plant and it shrivels and dies. You see, Jonah wants God to be a God of judgment who zaps people. And so God tests to see if Jonah really does want a God who zaps people by zapping Jonah's plant. 
And after Jonah's shade has gone, God slowly turns up the sun until he really has a hot cross prophet. Jonah is extremely angry about the vine. Perhaps he even kicks it. And now Jonah is in a place where he can hear from God. God comes to him again in verse 9 and asks a second question. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? To which Jonah replies, I do. I'm angry enough to die. And so God says to Jonah, well, let's analyze this anger of yours for a moment, Jonah. You've been concerned about this vine. You didn't plant it. You tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Again, here we see something of the great compassion and grace of God. Jonah looks at the great city of Nineveh and all that he can see is a group of bloodthirsty terrorists who rightly deserve God's judgment. God looks at the same city and without excusing their evil, sees a group of people who are lost and blind and poor and needy. Which begs the question, how do I see people? Pastor Tim Keller writes this in his book on Jonah. There are many people who have no idea what they should be living for or the meaning of their lives, nor have they any guide to tell them right from wrong. God looks down at people in that kind of spiritual fog, that spiritual stupidity, and he doesn't say, you idiots. When we look at people who've brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we say things like, serves them right, or we mock them on social media. What kind of imbecile says something like this? God doesn't do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our heart to others, means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. The lostness of this people grieves God's heart. Do God's words to Jonah sound at all familiar? They should. Because when God became flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus, one afternoon he looked up and saw large crowds of people coming towards him. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or on another afternoon, we read that as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And you remember what particular afternoon that was. That was the afternoon of the triumphal entry, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem a week before his death on the cross. Tim Keller goes on to point out that Jonah doesn't weep for the city, but Jesus does. Jesus is the prophet Jonah should have been. Yet, of course, he's infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city, hoping to witness its destruction, but Jesus Christ went outside the city to die on a cross to accomplish its salvation. Here we read that God is concerned about the city of Nineveh, 
which mean that its sin and wickedness hurt him. He suffers because of their sin. But on the cross, Jesus goes through the infinite and most unfathomable pain of all, separation from God, the wages of sin. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, they're torturing and killing me. They're denying and betraying me. But none of them really completely understand what they're doing. And so look at Jesus' heart. He doesn't say that they're not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. That's why they need forgiveness. But Jesus is also remembering that they are confused, somewhat clueless, and not really able to recognize the horror of what they're doing. Here, then, is a perfect heart, perfect in generous love, not excusing, not harshly condemning. Jesus is the weeping God of Jonah chapter 4 in human form. Going back to one of our earlier points then, when we capture something of this, when we understand the heart of Jesus, when we understand just something of what he did for us on the cross, it gets rid of any sense of pride or superiority. Understanding something of the enormity of what Jesus accomplished for us makes nonsense of any of my attempts to try and accomplish salvation for myself. How could any of my good deeds, my going along to church, my prayer, my being nice, possibly compare to Jesus taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders, my sin and your sin, separating himself from God so that we could freely come to God. As the hymn writer puts it, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There's no way I can offer something to Jesus in comparison to what he offers me. And so the book ends, although it doesn't really end, does it? The book ends with a question, which leaves it open-ended. God asks Jonah, and he asks of each of us another of his famous questions, should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah, I weep over the city. Shouldn't you? And so, what about us, you and me? Do we weep over the great city of Cape Town or some of the other great cities of our world that are troubled today? Or are we angry at all of the horrible, sinful people whose crimes threaten our safety and whose corruption make our lives difficult? Do we see everyone around us as God sees them? And do we recognize that we're no better than other people around us? Do we recognize that all of us are lost and hungry and helpless in need of a Savior who cares about us and who has done everything necessary himself on his own to bring us back to him?